just enjoyment, learning, but it's to know God and to show Him to others. That other people around us should see Christ in our gathering and in our dispersing. That as we go into the community, we go as displays of the gospel. And so these things, we trust that God has opened these doors in order for us to be in the community for the sake of what he has done to show that to others. And so because it's not just a physical thing, not just a we're going to go put hot dogs and sell hot dogs Friday or we're just going to go out and hand out candy and it's just a physical interaction, it's spiritual Trusting that God is leading and with us and will use our efforts for his glory. And so we need to pray. We need to pray together and pray over these things and over our involvement in them. And that God would be with us, that he would lead us. He would open our eyes to what he would use us to do and that he would change lives. That he would change other people's lives and that he would give us a heart to be able to recognize what he is doing and how he would use an interaction for his glory and for the good of those people. And so, let's pray. Let's look at this scripture and then let's read the text we're going to look at this morning. Let's read these and then let's pray. We'll take a few minutes. I want to invite you. You're welcome to pray where you're at or come down front. But let's take a few minutes and pray and seek the Lord together rather than me or Alex or someone praying over you. Let's pray together. Does it make sense? Fantastic. So we're in Deuteronomy. Here we go. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. This is a beautiful verse. Let's read it out loud. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. So, you've heard that before, right? That is not fresh for any of us, hopefully. If it is, I hope you're going to memorize it. Spend some time in it. So, we're in Luke 2. I want to read those verses real quick of what we are going to look at uh, today. And then, let's pray. Okay? So Luke 2, 41, you can listen, you can turn there and hold there, whatever you want to do. But it says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So let's we'll spend a few moments praying.
Father, I thank you for your work of grace. That throughout the pages of scripture, from beginning to end, you are bringing about redemption. You are bringing about new life and restoration of all that you have made that has gone awry. As sin entered through Adam, through Eve, brought about fracture and brokenness and darkness and destruction for the perfect world that you intended and that you created, that you have been bringing about through your Son, restoration. And thank you, Lord, that we happen to be at a point in history where we can see we can see we can see what you've done we can see Christ we see who he is and we stand at a place where we can stand on the shoulders of so many before us who have wrestled with who he was and what you have revealed and be better for it so, Father, would you reveal to us today, may we clearly see your goodness and your grace in Christ, that, Lord, we would love you with all our hearts, with all our soul, and all our mind, God. That we would recognize your unity, and we would recognize your perfect divinity in your triune personhood. We would see you as you've been revealed to us. And that, God, you would draw us to recognize your favor in Christ to your people. That we have certainty of salvation because of him, because of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done in our lives. We thank you for, Lord, the cost that you have paid for the payment of our sin. And we thank you for gathering us together in like mind, in like recognition of who you are and what you've done. Lord, we ask that, God, these opportunities, these times, these different things in our community that you have opened up for us, that, Lord, you would direct us there. That, God, you would provide, Lord, workers to go out in the harvest, God. You would provide, Lord, your people. You would fill them with your spirit and direct them not out of obligation, not out of guilt, but God, because they see you at work and because you are leading them, Father. And that God, you would, you would make these times and, and Lord, different things that are going on, Lord, they would be, they would be redemptive in the lives of your people and also you would use your people to share you, to show you to be part of the regeneration of others, God. So, Father, would you, Lord, be glorified in us? God, would you speak to us now from your word that, God, we would hear from you? God, you would direct us in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So, this, this section of Scripture in Luke 2 is the only place we see of Jesus' childhood. There are some stories in, uh, in extra-biblical writings that uh, you lay them up against what we see in Scripture. They don't, they, they're, they're crazy, they're wild, and uh, seem very human in their composition versus what we see here 
in this story in Luke 2. And so we see the first few days of Jesus' life before this, and then we come to this place where Jesus is 12 years old, and he comes to, with his family to the temple to celebrate Passover, and he stays. Parents go off. Uh-oh, he's not there. Come back and find him. Three days, he's lost, and we have this interaction. And so as a parent, I don't know if you've ever lost uh, one of your children. I'll tell you a story in a little bit when we get to it of uh, one time that I lost one of my kids, and it could have been much worse than it was. But it's, it's probably a common experience we can commiserate with there of uh, kids wandering off. And so how much worse it must have been for Mary and Joseph to have lost the Son of God, to have lost the promised Messiah, and, uh-oh, he's not there. I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you, and he's not there. And what that must have been like, the pressure of that must have been incredible. But I fully intended in looking this, I saw one thing, and as I dug into it, found something completely different in this passage. That what I anticipated, what I thought this was saying, I was wrong on. And this, this passage is massive. In that who Christ is. Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Who do we understand Christ to be? This is, there's so much confusion. It was stunning to listen to sermons on this text and to see the wide perspectives and the wide confusion about Jesus and the wide confusion that borderlines many times on heresy on misappropriating who Christ is, how he is God and man, and what we see in this part of his life. And so this passage, this passage is so important because of Christ. Because this is such an important reality of who we believe Jesus to be, who we understand him to be, has such pivotal implications to whether we can depend on whether we're saved or not. Do we actually have promise and salvation? Do we actually have, have hope that our sin has been paid for? Well, if we're wrong on Christ, if we're wrong on who He is, there are serious implications to our view of salvation and our understanding of grace in Christ and our hope of glory one day, of being forgiven and of knowing that God accepts us in Him. And so, such an important passage uh, so, so I'm trying not to get sidetracked in councils and people and heresies and things and stick to the point of Christ and of what, uh, who he is. And so let's look at, first of all, what we see in this first section over what the Passover is, because Luke uses the Passover as kind of bookends to his life. This is chapter two. There are many more chapters and in this gospel, and what happens at the end of the life of Christ? When is he crucified? Passover. This is a bookend for the ministry and life of Christ. We have it starting here at 12 with Passover, and we have him returning to Passover upon his crucifixion. Passover is so important. 
It's such an important motif through Scripture. Let's look at what it is. And so Deuteronomy 16, let's look at just two verses in Deuteronomy 16. It should be on the screen here. As God instructs his people about Passover, let's see what he says. He says that verse 2 of Deuteronomy 16, And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock of the herd at the place the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. You shall eat with unleavened bread, the Passover sacrifice, and the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. And so go back to Israel as they are enslaved in Egypt and God miraculously brings them out of slavery and takes them out of Egypt to the land of promise and he does it through 10 things but specifically the last the last miracle that is remembered forever in Passover as God comes and sends a messenger of death to come to come kill, judge the firstborn of each family who did not have a pure, pure and unblemished lamb sacrificed on their behalf with the blood of that sacrifice over the door of the home. And so Passover is a picture of redemption, of how God has redeemed his people and did it specifically through the sacrifice of an animal, but as we see in Christ, it's always pointing towards who Jesus is, that Jesus is the one who is to provide true redemption for his people, not temporary redemption, because we see Israel that they come out of Egypt, they're all messed up. They, like, it's, it's not good if you read past Deuteronomy and into the Old Testament of what happens. Israel was not in a solid, they did not truly believe God, and there was a lot of destruction, a lot of pain, a lot of bad stuff that happened. But God instructs his people every year to observe this, to remember this, to remember how God brought his people out of Egypt, and to do this at the place that he will choose. So Deuteronomy, they have not come into the promised land yet, so there is no Jerusalem, there is no temple, it doesn't exist yet. And so this is a promise looking forward to what God would then do through Solomon, and then through the kings, and then as we see in this part in Luke 2, as God would do through Herod the great before, in having the temple, the place where God's presence was, where God would meet with his people, that then the people would be gathered once a year for this Passover rite, this Passover ritual of remembering God's work of redemption for his people. And so God instructed that the men of the families were to travel for this. There were three holidays through the year, through the religious calendar, that they were to travel to Jerusalem. And we see that the whole family is traveling. Do you see that in the first few verses? As it says that as he was 12 years old, according to custom, they all went to Jerusalem. So where do they live? Nazareth. How far is Nazareth from Jerusalem? Guess. It's about 75, 80 miles. It's a three-day hike. Like they're, they're walking or they're on a donkey, they have no cars, 
There's like no mode of transportation that's not slow. And so it's a, it's a hike. It's a trip. But what does it say? This is their custom. They do this every year. Can you imagine like how, what this must have been like, that the, the calendar of their year is, is structured by these observances of worship, by the instruction God had given his people to travel to Jerusalem for this week of worship that Jesus' family did, that they traveled multiple days in order to come be in Jerusalem for Passover and then traveled back. The point of what Luke is telling us is his family, Jesus' family, they, their family was structured around observing what God had said, loving the Lord, as we looked in Deuteronomy 6, with all their heart, all their soul, and all their mind. That their family structure, their custom, their practice was obedience to the Lord and worship of him. That what what God had told his people, they did, and it was the practice. The practices of our family affect our family. What we do to bring this forward into our context and our lives, what we do, especially parents, what we do affects ourselves and our children. The practices, the customs of our families affect how our children will view the world, how they will understand things, how they will then live as adults. And so we see this in, in Jesus' life. There are, there are other two places where this word custom is used, and each of them are used over practices in Jesus' life, that it was his custom in Luke 4, 6 to go into synagogues, to as on the day of Sabbath to be in a synagogue, to to worship and to read scripture. And then also at the very end of Luke, it was his custom to go and pray on the Mount of Olives and to other places. It was his custom to go away in prayer. And so these practices are effective, are part of of the family and should be also for us as parents to consider what are the customs of our family? What do we give attention to? What do we do? Is, our, is our, the decisions we make and the things we do, are we focused on the things of the Lord, of structuring our lives around what God has told us to do? That we dependably walk in faith after Him? Or is our lives, are they just other things put together of what we might want to do and feel like and what looks good at this time or that time? Because what we do, our practices, affect us and affect our children. And so we see here the orbit of his family, of the family of Christ, these practices, they showed value and showed priority in their family. And so I would encourage you to consider that, but also it's not the primary point of this. It's not the primary point of of what Jesus, what we see here. And so let's move on, verses 44 through 48. So as they are in the temple, they've gone for Passover, for worship. The week is over and family packs up. Family packs up and go. So it's a a hike and so they would go as a caravan, as a group, traveling down from around Galilee, from Nazareth area, would, would pack up and head out. And so because of the age Jesus is, 
because he's 12, he's kind of on the cusp of becoming a, a son of the law, son of the commandments, where he is taking spiritual responsibility for his worship in the Lord. And so as perhaps what happened to kind of explain this so you don't get the get the picture that Mary and Joseph were neglectful and terrible parents but that they uh, as they would travel in caravans you would have the children uh, separated from the men and so you would have you would have these groups kind of separated out and so perhaps what happened is because of the age of Jesus, Mary with the kids is like, well, I figure he is 12. He's about to be 13. He's about to make that jump. And so he's with dad over with the older men. And then dad, Joseph's like, well, he's not quite there yet. Maybe he's up there with, with the kids and playing and running around and doing whatever they did. And so it, lo- it appears as the story goes that that there's just confusion over where Jesus is. But Jesus remains in the temple. And so supposing him to be in the group, verse 44, they went a day's journey. So they walked a day, and then as they stop, maybe they start eating, cooking, asking, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Haven't seen him. And they figure out he's not there. Can you imagine what that must have been like? just their own experience. This is, this is complete speculation. It's not clear, but we can pull from it that the pressure, the pressure of what they must have felt to have misplaced Jesus and not know where he is. And so once they find out and they don't see him, they return to Jerusalem. And so verse 46, after three days, they found him. Hint, hint, that is a purposeful time period pointing forward to what we'll see in the end. They found him in the temple, and what was he doing? He was sitting there, talking, asking questions, answering, and all were amazed at his answers of what he said. And so, verse 48, look at this. His parents, they were not thrilled. Mary and Joseph we're not thrilled about this. And they were astonished. Yes, as it says, they were amazed at his understanding. All who heard him, and they were astonished. But as it says, son, why have you treated us so? Verse 48. Behold, your father and I have searched for you in great distress. That the word son is, is a kind translation. It's kind of like Mary said, child. Child, what have you done to us? And directly, our, the English kind of softens the, the translation, it's a little aggressive in that Mary says, child, why have you done this to us? Why have you brought this to us? And then the second sentence of we've searched for you in great distress, the word distress is actually pain. That it's more than just shock, just, oh no, what could happen? Anxiety. But Mary it almost sounds like Mary is accusing Jesus of, of doing this, of you have caused pain for us, Jesus. Like you, you have done this, a kind of a rebuke of Christ. That is Mary and Joseph, and I think we can identify a little bit with that, of, of taking circumstances and reflecting those upon our kids. But we see that as Mary and Joseph here, as they have lost Jesus, as they find and they are astonished, they don't understand. They don't understand what Jesus is doing. They don't understand why he is there. 
And that as it's almost like they are accusing Jesus and their minds are blown at the knowledge of this 12-year-old, they don't understand what is going on. How come Jesus was so astonishing? Why was Jesus so, uh, had this whole crowd of religious leaders who were experts in the scripture, who knew God and knew what he had said, how come this 12-year-old boy was astounding them all? What, was it divine knowledge? Perhaps he had divine knowledge of the truth because he's God, right? He's the son, so in him sitting there, is he drawing from this divine well of understanding and like throwing little zingers out there with, with what he knew? I think not. I think that's a big problem if that's what we look at. Jesus is a 12-year-old boy. He is fully human, which means his mind is fully human, which means his understanding of things is fully human, but he's also fully God. And so in saying divine, that he have divine knowledge then presumes logically that that divineness swallowed up is humanness. And then we, we suddenly have a problem. If his divine knowledge swallowed up his human mind, we then have a big issue with, well, what else? If his divinity swallowed that up and superseded his, uh, his experience as a human, as growing in knowledge and growing in understanding, then what potentially else of his humanity does he not join with us on? Does that make sense? It's so important for us to get, understand rightly who Christ is, to understand who Jesus is, what the incarnation is, because it's rife with issues if we don't. If we look at Christ specifically here and throughout Scripture, and we're not careful in how we understand Him and who He is. So let's, let's wrap up this passage, and then I want to look at a few other places in Scripture to better understand Christ and better understand who He is because if we understand Him rightly of how the Son took flesh and walked among us, oh, it's so encouraging to salvation that we have an assured foundation in Christ that no matter where we're at, no matter what's going on, that we truly can trust Him. That if we are in Christ, we are new creations, the old has gone away, and nothing can snatch us out of His hand. If we understand the beauty of what God has done. And so look, verse 49, and He said to them, Jesus responds, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? They did not understand what He spoke to them. And so, right there in his response, these two questions he gives them. His first question, didn't you know? Didn't you understand? Like, why, why were you looking for me? And then, where he says, did you not know? Specifically, that is, a, that is a rare tense in the Greek that entails a previous completed action. And so, what Jesus is actually saying is, didn't you already know who I was? Didn't you already know, hearkening back just a few pages in Luke, of the, the prophecy of the angels that came to Mary and Joseph saying, 
this is who this is, that you will, this Holy Spirit will come overshadow you, Mary, and you will give birth to the Son of God, the Messiah. And so they've already been told. They've already been told who he is. And so Jesus is saying, didn't you know that I must be about my Father's will? I must be in his house that I must be doing what God, my Father, has led me to do, what I'm here for. And so we have Mary and Joseph who, it says, they don't get it. They did not understand what he spoke to them. But we see in his statement here, one, it's, it's already clear, the Scripture has been clear who Jesus is. It's clear of who he is, of what he is there to do, and it's also clear in what he says that what he must be doing, what is necessary that he is doing, is the will of his Father. And so he's making a claim here to his divinity, that he is not just a person, he's not just a human, but he's also God. And so in some measure, he understands who he is and what he is there for, and yet verse 51, we see in this interaction, he submits to his parents and returns home. We see, I think one, an example, I don't want to make too much of it, we, we see an example of parental roles and the role of children, that as children we are to submit to our parents, we are to submit to their leadership, understanding that God has placed them over us, but also I think specifically in Christ we see his humility we see his humility that he is 12 years old. He is a young man. He is a boy. And he is fully human. Therefore, what is before him is a question of submission to what God has placed in his life. And he, in humility, does so. Submits to them and goes and increases, verse 52, in knowledge, in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. He continues to grow, to learn and mature. And so Mary and Joseph should have known, but they didn't understand. So Luke in verse 43, he makes a really interesting connection with, with a word he uses and a word that we see in the Old Testament, specifically in the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 52 and 53. That the word specifically that is used for child in verse uh, 43 is also the same word used in Isaiah 52 about the servant, the suffering servant who would come to take the sin of God's people upon himself, that by his stripes there would be peace through his chastisement, through his punishment, God's people would be restored and forgiven. From beginning to end, the life of Christ was a life of sacrifice. That he was sent in order to save, in order to lead God's people back to him and provide restoration. That's what he was doing from beginning to end. And so Jesus, being the servant, he has come in order to serve God's people by giving his life by giving his full humanity on behalf of humans, people, you, me. 
So let's look at this. Let's look at what Scripture says. Let's look at Hebrews 2.14 and get, get some glimpses. We're gonna, it's going to be on the screen. You may want to write these down. All of these passages, memorize them. Like These are essential, essential passages of who Christ is uh, to get a good perspective of Christology and who he is. And so Jesus, Jesus, we see him as a 12-year-old. He is not marred by sin. He is sinless. We cannot fathom what a 12-year-old sinless person must be like. Sin has marred our ability to understand. Sin has marred our conception of reality. Sin has marred our intellectual faculty such that Jesus is not that. He is sinless. He is perfect. He has no issue there. There is no sin upon him, yet he is fully man and fully a human, yet he grew in knowledge, not because of his divinity, but because he is sinless. And so look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Is it up there? Good. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Sin has corrupted us. It's corrupted our, our bodies. It's corrupted our souls and our minds. And it is called blindness, and it has is, it is affected our understanding. But Christ, Christ is made just like us in not our sin, but in our humanness. What makes us people? That he has a body and he has a soul. He didn't appear to be human. He was human. That's why Mary is his mom, because he is human, fully, like you and me. He partook of what makes you a person yet without sin. There is no sin. There is no death. There is no destruction in him. He is perfect, sinless, which means he can see, he can understand. He has a capacity for understanding, not because he is God, but because he is sinless man. And so he learns and he grows in knowledge. We see that so that why did he partake? Why did he partake of humanity? Why did he take it upon himself? so that he could also partake of death on behalf of us. Sin produces death. God made it clear in the garden, and he makes it clear throughout Scripture, that our sin and rebellion against him, the wages of it is death. We will die because of our sin. Jesus was sinless. He would never have died because he was without sin. But in taking full humanity upon himself, by going through death and being divine, he could destroy it. Remove the power of death, the devil, that he would destroy that power by his incarnation and by his sacrifice. By him giving himself, he destroyed it. And so continue on, verse uh, 14 of John 1 you're probably familiar with this one also. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the Son of God. The Word took flesh. He took humanity upon Himself. He did not cease to be God, and His divinity did not swallow up His humanity, but divinity, the Word, the Son, took upon Him and added to Himself Humanity, full humanity, a full human mind, a, few, a full human soul, body and all, so that we would see God clearly. 
We would see him and we would know him that he is full of grace and truth. Christ fully shares in what makes us human, but he also fully shares in God. Christ is God. He's not a sub-God. He is not a demigod. He is not part. He is God. He always has existed. He is uncreated. He did not ha- there was not a day when the Son was not. He always has existed. The Son of God created all things and always has existed. The triune Father, Son, and Spirit is in complete harmony eternally. He needs nothing. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need anything. He did not come bring salvation. He did not create humanity because he was lonely and needed help. He is complete. He is completely satisfied in himself without need of anything. Yet, out of his goodness, out of his grace, and out of his divine wisdom and intelligence, he created all things, and he has come and given of himself to restore all things in Christ. So that when we see him, we see the word, the eternal God who has added humanity upon himself, taking it to be with him in order to redeem, in order to bring about life and to destroy death and to destroy sin. So Christ fully shares this, this humanity, and he is fully God. Go to Philippians 2, 6, 7, and 8. So it's a larger passage, but specifically it says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning that he did not hang on to it. The son did not say, I'm going to keep this, I'm going to stay this. But he willingly, he willingly stepped out of eternity, out of heaven. The son willingly did this in order to, verse 7, to empty himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man, he became, he Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This divine emptying doesn't mean that he gave up his divinity. It doesn't mean that Christ laid aside what makes him God. It means that he added to him humanity. Can any of you create things by your words? Can any of you fly without a plane? Can any of you create planets? Can you bring into being something that doesn't exist? We are limited. That's that's part of who we are, that we are limited. We are inherently limited. We are inherently weak. We see it in our lives as we grow older. Things hurt. Things don't work like they used to. We, that's part of being human. That's part of being a creation. Christ is no creation. He always has existed. And yet he comes and takes upon himself limited humanity fully. And so we have the wedding of humanity fully and divinity. That somehow in Christ, in the incarnation, we have God who has taken upon himself this human likeness and being born in human form, taking humanity upon himself as a humiliation. Can you imagine the humiliation that it was? That God the Son, infinite, perfect, complete, would take upon himself limited humanity to be born as a baby and to grow as this 12-year-old Jesus that we see. Why did he do this? But for the love of what he has made, that he would come be the Passover sacrifice 
that the right guilt of sin and judgment that we deserve would pass over us. That he would take it on our behalf. Jesus the Son, he emptied himself by adding humanity. He did not cease to be God, but he took human frailty and weakness upon himself. So that this glorious work of God would bring about redemption. It would bring about restoration for his people. Can we beat death? We can't. And so if the Savior is simply a human who is sinless, who didn't do no wrong, he just suddenly happened to make it to the end, his death would not have been sufficient to atone for the sin of anybody else who's merely human. But he, being divine, God who has taken the Son, who has taken humanity upon himself, by him being our representative in his humanity, taking himself to the cross by his death, he could destroy sin because he's fully God. And that because he's fully man can share that with us. So, last verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father made God the Son to be sin, so that if we are in him we could have his righteousness so that we if no matter what we have done how we have failed and what we've what we've decided to do how we have tarnished the name of God that because of him because the son came and took humanity upon himself that he gave his life on a cross as fully man fully God that we can be forgiven because he took our sin upon himself and because of who he is it's done with because of his nature because of his the reality of who he is as fully God and fully man sin is finished There is no return to it. There is no ounce of it that if Christ has paid your debt because of who he is, his divinity destroys it. He's a perfect sacrifice. He perfectly gave his life. He perfect in his humanity. There is nothing wrong, no sin, no tarnishing in him that in him giving his life, you can have hope and know with confidence that God looks upon you and sees the righteousness of Christ Because he's taken your sin. Because of who he is. It is so important for us to get Christ right. Because if we don't, if we don't understand him rightly, if we don't understand who he truly is, that he is not a creation. He did not, he's not an apparition where he appeared to be human. He also is not just a little person that the 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 divineness of God came and swallowed up his humanness. But he is somehow fully God. They are, they are connected and united, yet they are not, they are not um, intermixed such that the personhood of the, of the Son and of Jesus the man become mixed up. So one swallows the other, but he is perfect God and man. So, 
I haven't mentioned any people in church history yet. I thought that's where I was going to go. Because this, we, we stand on the shoulders of generations and generations of people who have fought these out, fought these lines out, and tried to figure out who is Christ? Who is he? What does Scripture teach about him? We can have confidence in Christ because of who he is. We can have confidence that he can save and he can save us because of his perfection. Because he is perfectly human and also perfectly God. And so friends, I hope I hope you recognize in Christ that you have hope in him. That Christ who he actually is is who you believe in. That you would see his love for what he has made. That he willingly did this. The son willingly took humanity upon himself, weakness upon himself, frailty upon himself in order to give his life. He didn't have a jet. He wasn't like a televangelist. He didn't live like we see the religious elite today. He had nothing. He came as a servant and he served his people and he taught and he gave his life. And it wasn't, the, it wasn't the end. The cross wasn't the end. After three days, so they can't find him three days, all of a sudden he's there. He's crucified three days, they can't find him, and all of a sudden he's there. Jesus is alive. After his crucifixion, he's resurrected to be with his people for eternity. He ascends and he's returning. And so we don't see Jesus. We don't see him with us. We don't see him around us. But the gift he's given us of what he has done and what he has given us in Scripture and at what he's entrusted to us by his Spirit. He is near his people. He is near you if you are in Christ. So, see Jesus. Be encouraged by what he has done and who he is. That he is dependable and you can trust him. You can trust him that he did not make a mistake. He completely lived a human life fully and yet without sin. And therefore we can trust him that he has been where we are. That we can trust him through whatever it is that he is near and he will carry us through. That our faithfulness is not what makes us right before God, but his faithfulness. It is His righteousness. And so we can continue to come to Him and trust in Him. And two, if you don't know Him, this is what He's done for you. There is only one name. There is only one Savior. There is only one place to go. Nothing else that promises will be able to bring you life and take care of you and give you lasting, eternal happiness, joy, and purpose and forgiveness, only Christ. He is the Lord. And this is what he's done for you. That the Son came and took humanity so that you could be forgiven. And he doesn't require you to earn a certain amount of points, and then you've hit the threshold, and then you're in. It's nothing you can do. It's nothing we can do. 
but is complete dependence upon Him, turning away from our sin and our selfishness to trust fully in Him that what He has done is sufficient, that He is sufficient and that He loves us and wants us to be forgiven and that He has given His life on our behalf. Faith and repentance. It's real simple. It's not complex. He's done the complex work. It's simply turning our lives to Him, to trust fully in Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you, you have made the way. You, Lord Jesus, are the way, the truth, and the life. There is no name under heaven by which we are saved but Christ. There is nothing else. That from beginning to end, from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, it is Christ and him crucified. That you are the Lord and you have taken Lord Jesus, our our sin upon you, that we can be forgiven and healed in you, and that we can have life eternal. And so, Lord, remind us, remind us, God, this morning, remind us of your greatness, of your glory, remind us of your compassion, and also lead us, God. Lead us, Lord, in repentance. Lead us in that our lives would be conformed, that we as you, Lord Jesus, as a 12-year-old, that you grew in knowledge and stature among God and men, favor and before them, that we, Lord, would submit ourselves to you, to learn of you, to seek you, to know you. That our lives would be conformed to your ways and to your purposes, that we would obey you. So God, would you help us? Would you lead us, God? Would you speak to us and help us, Lord, for what you would have us to do, how you would have us to respond? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're going to have just a...